Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. As we record this, it's an exciting time. It's happening slowly, and I hope carefully, but the world is slowly healing. More and more of us are being vaccinated, and in the areas that are exercising caution, the virus numbers, hospitalizations, and deaths are going down, way down. My hometown of Los Angeles is opening up again, and that includes movie theaters. Yes, it's only to 25% capacity and with limited items available at the snack bar, but they are open. How's it going to play out? That's a mystery. Have the moviegoers of America gotten used to accessing their new movies at home through streaming and on-demand choices? Will they come back to the cinemas to watch them as God intended? The shared experience of a play, a concert, or a movie is an important element that I've missed. It's particularly important for the horror genre. Fear is best shared, and sharing the experience amplifies the experience. Sitting in front of your iPad to watch a scary movie will rarely raise goosebumps. But fear, like laughter, is contagious. Comedies viewed alone are a lot less funny than shared with a crowd. And likewise, horror and suspense are a lot more tense and suspenseful in a huge darkened theater on a 60-foot screen than alone on a 10-inch iPad. I'm eager to take those trepidatious steps back into the AMC at Universal City Walk, grab my popcorn, and hunker down into lay-down position and lose myself into a new living nightmare with an eager and appreciative audience, even if they are all at least a dozen feet away from each other. Our guest has played a part in many of our cinematic nightmares, but his work goes way beyond that. In movies and TV since the 80s, his roles are as wide and diverse as his stature is towering. Let's get to know how Clancy Brown began his incredible life in the cinema. Clancy, welcome. Oh, thanks, Mix. Thanks so much. Yeah, well, you grew up in Urbana, Ohio, and your mother, you have arts in the family. Your mother was a concert pianist, a composer, a conductor. Your father published the local newspaper and was a congressman. So tell me about what that childhood was like and and what influenced you. What were the things you watched and listened to? Oh, goodness. It was kind of unremarkable you know, Midwestern small town upbringing. Um, uh, as far as films and stuff go, you know, there was always music in the house. My grandmother was also a pianist, and uh, uh, so there was always classical music in the house. Um, uh, as far as movies go, we had a little local movie theater that uh, was named after the 
the local millionaire's daughter, the Gloria, uh, <laughs> which is now being uh, renovated and returned to its former glory by some some people that care about that stuff. That's um, pretty great. Yeah, it is pretty great. It's it was busted up into a into two theaters for the longest time, and uh, and then it got sold uh, a few years back to a uh, to a church, and uh, some people uh -huh. got together and bought it back from the church and said, yeah, let's restore this to its former glory. So, so that's what they did. Um, so did you and, also play an instrument? Ah, uh, 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 you know, I, I messed around with the piano. My, I wasn't a very good student for my mom being the teacher. And then, you know, I, I, I flirted with the trombone for a minute. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so you but didn't I was, I was, rebel into the world of rock and roll or anything like that? No, no, I wish I could have. Um, but it, that, that really wasn't uh, an option in, in our house. And you what know? I mean, I had my record player and, you know, my records yeah. and stuff. And you mostly listened to classical music. Well, that was what was on in the house. No, I mean, I had. I had, I had horrible taste in rock and roll music. I was, uh, <laughs> oh, tell me. Grand, so. Grand Funk Railroad was, <laughs> All right. was my go-to for a minute. In the movie theater, we had like, we had weekend matinees. We had Saturday matinees. We had kitty matinees for, you know, we saw stuff like Gentle Ben and, and uh, uh, you know, family fair like that. But there was also like, you know, the, the, the three challenges of Tarzan and, uh, and, uh, um, what was the one that I love so much? Uh, uh, goodness. So it was adventure movies that really. Yeah, it was adventure movies and and like and 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 family movies and um, uh, gosh, what was it? Oh, the green slime. I don't know if you ever. Oh, if you know of that course one. I know that. Right? Yes. Yeah, and there's no right. slime in it at all. <laughs> there's no slime, <laughs> but but it was a that one was kind of kind of opened my eyes a little bit to uh, to genre stuff. The uh, you know what what lies beneath the genre stuff there's always the the uh, the adventure and of course the the macho patriotism and you know sacrifice and all that stuff that was that was very much a part of the uh 60s and right, 70s right. kind of, and, and, kind of and adventure movie but, but it was also very environmental that one right? yes it was all, exactly right it was really kind of oddly ahead of its time that way but you found yourself interested in the genre at a very early age then and it was it a particular appeal or just one of many colors in the rainbow no it was one of many colors in the rainbow i mean you know you're you're a small tank We're, we all grow up where we grow up and you know i'd never imagined myself um outside of urbana ohio at a young age i you know thought i would go into you know the thought I would go into the, the newspaper business or, you know, something around my hometown. And, and then when my dad got elected to politics, then we went to DC and your world opens up a little bit further, but you know, I wasn't particularly imaginative kid at that point and didn't really know what other, what other careers they could possibly be. And certainly the least of those careers would be an actor. <laughs> um, you know, that hadn't occurred to me at all. And then, um, then you know your mind sort of gets uh, gets expanded by what you study in school, and we had a particularly uh, particularly interesting. I went to a particularly interesting high school called um, St. Albans School, and they had a couple of teachers there that that uh, that taught some uh, 
taught Shakespeare and taught the classics and sort of your, your, your mind expands beyond that. And, and well, you were in a play people in when, DC. You yeah. were in a play when you were in seventh grade, right? But it was the mouse that roared, which. <laughs> Peter Sellers, a classic Peter Sellers. Movie. Yes. A great satire <laughs> that is pretty advanced for a seventh grade class uh, to, well, to take on. How did you even know that? Holy shit. I do my research. Yeah. Well, yeah, I that was, okay. Well, that was, yeah. Mrs. Vestal, Phyllis Vestal, God rest her soul. She uh, ran the junior high drama department and, um, you know, perceived that I was kind of the, the weirdo kid that might actually enjoy doing that stuff. And so I, so she cast me to be that Peter Sellers character. And that was a lot of fun, but still never occurred to me to actually do it as a living. It was kind but of that fun. Was the, to that was the first time school. you dipped your feet into it. Yeah, it was fun oh, to do after school. Yeah. You know, it was a fun thing to do. I wasn't a particularly coordinated kid. I, you know, I was on the basketball team and stuff, but I wasn't an athlete until I got into high school. You know, it never came together. Um, Did you find yourself being defined by your height in sports and then later on in acting? Yeah, sort of, I would say. I would, you know, everybody, everybody takes a gander at you and determines who you are physically first, I think. Um, and, you know, I, like I said, I was a Midwestern kid, so it was all about uh, growing up and going to Ohio State and playing for Woody Hayes. And, you know, that was just that was just kind of the bubble that I was in at the time. And then you go to D.C. and, you know, you get your mind expanded a little bit. Mrs. Vestal expanded it. And then Ted Walsh at uh, St. Albans School, you know, opened me up beyond that. And there was a kid who lived next door who was... Uh, quite brilliant who would go on these sort of learning jags and one of them at one point was was Shakespeare and so we would like sort of do these read the Shakespeare scenes and do the Shakespeare plays and that was really when I started enjoying myself with theater and as a as something that I th thought well this is something I could always occupy myself with you know I don't know if I could make a living at it but I could certainly enjoy it for the rest of my life and and there were enough of those plays to to take up some time, you know. Well, how did you make the transition from a student who loved Shakespeare and dabbled in doing plays to doing movies? I was doing publicity at Universal in 1982 when Bad Boys was being shot. And that, I think, was your first movie, if I'm not mistaken, right? Right, right. So I went to Northwestern and I, I you know, decided to take theater in the as my major as undergrad. And Chicago was a pretty happening uh, theatrical town at that time with uh, Steppenwolf and Remains and Organic and, you know, um, lots oh, of stuff. Yeah, going Stuart on. Gordon and Gary yeah. Sinise and all the, yeah, those Stuart. people who've been on the show and are good friends and I've worked with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was very hopping. It was a very exciting place to be. So I thought I would just like, you know, bop around there for a couple of years and, and see if I could get something going. And, uh, at least enjoy myself and then, you know, grow up and go to grad school and, you know, go be a businessman or a lawyer or whatever the hell it was <laughs> going to be. And then this uh, movie came through town, uh, Bad Boys, and I auditioned for it and didn't get it. And then uh, the guy who did get it couldn't do it, decided not to do it. And they called me up again. So I ended up doing it. And really from the first moment I was on the movie set, I thought, you know, this is how do you, this is how you do it. This is this is a lot of fun. I love theater and I love doing theater. But uh, as soon as I was on a film set, I thought, wow, this is this is the coolest ever. 
And, yeah, uh, the intimacy of really filmmaking did. where you go shot by shot and you see yeah. every detail as opposed to playing to the proscenium. Yeah, and it was a lot of um, yeah, a lot of other kind of teamwork, you know. You had a lot of people there with you that you couldn't see, of course. It wasn't just it wasn't just you and the audience and the the other actor on stage. It was it was you and all the crew and the camera guys and you were, I mean, you know, everybody was kind of working uh, for the same, for the same few seconds, the same 30 seconds of whatever piece of the film you were doing. And you can do it until you get it right. Uh, instead of trying to recreate your best rehearsal every night, you know, you get to, right. you get to do it over and over and over again. So you can do it exactly how you, how you meant for it to come out. And it was, you know, it was fun that way. And there was all sorts of other artisans and stuff around all the time. So, and it just gets more and more like that as, as I get older, get crankier. <laughs> <laughs> well, that first movie was a major studio film. And yeah. it was followed up with um, The Dukes of Hazard, if I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the difference in experience between... <laughs> Doing an episode of the Dukes of Hazard after having been uh, baptized in a major studio. <laughs> I'm going to sound like such an asshole when I tell you this story. No, you're um, not. No, I came. I, you know, I decided to give it a shot and come to come to L.A. and um, and that was the first uh, thing that came down the pike. And I went in and I thought, I'm not going to. I gotta do this stupid show. This show is completely, you know, what am I talking about? And then, and then I sat there and thought about it for a while and said, well, you know, who do I think I am that I, I could have this attitude about a, yeah. a, a TV show? What do I know? I just got here. So, so I went and auditioned and I saw uh, another actor I recognized from Chicago there. And um, I thought, well, you know, maybe this is, Maybe this is okay. Maybe I should do this. Uh, and of course, he didn't get the role. I did, and and I thought, oh, this is going to be completely horrible. But again, what do I know? Who do I think I am? <laughs> so I went in and I did it, and it was like worse than anything I could have imagined. It was so, it was so. In what and, and 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 I well, I hate to. Say, I mean, you know, it it was a different time for television, and you know, it was a studio. Uh, it, it was set in the studio and had been on for many, many years and many contract disputes and all sorts of things. I think, um, I think the original Dukes had been replaced and come back. And, you know, th there was just a lot of history on that set and it was very much a studio, uh, situation, you know, really, uh, I forget which studio it was. I think it was. I think it was Burbank. I think it was Warner Brothers. Yeah, Warner Brothers, I believe. And um, and we, you know, we were on the we were on the built sets that were uh, also. I, th I think it was the town square that was also the town square in um, uh, Back to the Future, which was kind of cool. Yes, which hadn't been filmed yet, but you know that was that was where it was. And then we went out to a ranch and. Uh, uh, you know, they had this, they had their stunt ranch out there with all their guys and everybody just seemed to be, you know, sort of like getting by and 
thinking about stuff other than the film that they were making. And it was very, you know, it was very by the numbers for them. And, and I just thought it was kind of silly and dumb. So a very um, different feeling from doing the movie. You yeah, because in the movie, we, you know, it was Sean Penn and it was Rick Rosenthal and Esai and all the guys, Rennie. And, the, you know, everybody was kind of like, you know, at a level. Everybody was kind of uh, kind of focused on it and trying to make it better and having the conversations and, you know, going again and going again and going again. And this one was very much by the numbers and mm. in, in, a, in a way you know, professional in its own way, but very, um, very factory. I Making a product, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, and it didn't seem like anybody really cared too much about it, except for the guy that I was with, uh, who was a really great guy. Um, uh, I want to say Jeff Jefferson or something like that was his name. Mm. And he was, you know, he was really committed and he was really, uh, he was really trying to make it better the whole time. And I, I kind of watched him. And I thought, now that's, that's what I should be. That's a professional actor right there. That's, that's what I should be doing. I shouldn't have this, this dumb attitude about this stupid show. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I've always admired that. I never ran into him again, but I always thought, wow, that's, that's the kind of actor that I should have been at that time. Well, the next thing to come along really put you into the genre in a major way in Frank Rodham's The Bride. Oh, um, yeah, right. So, and this was also what people today would call elevated horror. They're going back to Mary Shelley and taking it very seriously and not thinking of it as the gutter genre, which we, of course, don't hear. We know the difference between the good stuff and the bad stuff. So tell me about that experience, because it's also the first experience you had with prosthetics, which was not a very pleasant one, I believe. Right, right. So, yeah, Lloyd Fonville had written a beautiful script, just a beautiful and romantic script and, and taken the Frankenstein myth and pushed it into kind of the rom-com area, but also also a buddy picture and also a, a picture about uh, 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 a feminist picture, you know, uh, a, uh, I wouldn't say a Me Too picture, I wouldn't say a, a, a women's rights picture, but, you know, a sort of a, a women's equality picture, you know. Uh, which which is a which is a great sort of spin on on that uh, on that myth, you know, the creation of the bride, and you know, if you're going to create a bride, if you're going to create a, the um, ideal mate, then that ideal mate is going to be much more than than uh, just uh, a pretty face and 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 a mate. It's going to be an, it's going to be your equal. And you have to allow it to be your equal. And that was sort of the sting Jennifer Beals part of it. Um, a Pygmalion kind of a kind of a story. And then uh, and then there was a great little buddy portion of it that was uh, uh, me and David Rappaport. And David was kind of the uh, he was kind of the embodiment of the uh, the monster uh, uh, watching the family. He was the one that taught because in the original book the monster watches a family eat and and socialize and that's how he learns to be human and so now he goes around with uh this uh this carny uh midget uh david rapaport this carny dwarf i don't know what i'm supposed to call him 
uh, and uh, and learns the world through the through showbiz basically yeah and uh and um and learns to be human that way and we find you know that that's actually a much uh, a much more direct path to learning to be human than maybe living in a castle with aristocrats and all the rest of that uh, but it was a beautiful beautiful script and um we had uh we had a, the a team doing the makeup and they did a great job but it was early on in prosthetic makeups um and uh they uh, they were instead of using duo uh which was a glue a prosthetic glue uh that you used for actual um you know surgical prosthetics and it was a latex based glue they used sort of the european version and um apparently um this version in the duo version they added put an additive in that neutralized the ammonia that they used to uh, liquidate the latex uh, the raw latex so it doesn't get hard and uh, they didn't have that additive in and so it was just latex and ammonia and so the latex was fine but the ammonia ate away my skin oh, uh, for a while and of course I'm you know I'm 20 it's my second or third job and I'm you know and I don't say anything for the longest time <laughs> until it oh, gets boy. too until it gets too bad so it had kind of eaten away my skin they put out a story that uh, that I had a reaction to it but my reaction was the same reaction anybody would have to being exposed to you know to pouring ammonia over your body for for many weeks yeah. Um, so, and this is during the course of production. You're in prosthetics every single day, and you're yeah, in so much day. of the movie too. Yeah, yeah, and all day and stuff. So we had to shut down for a little while when my skin came back, and then they figured out uh, the trichloro-trifluoroethane and Dow three five five, which is pretty much uh, the, the the prototype of what they use now. The the two step. Uh, you paint the pieces, and then you then you have a solvent that attaches to your skin. And, well, thank it's, God it wasn't something long-lasting. That no, know, no, no, it wasn't long. You were lasting. able to get didn't that. didn't make me a fan of prosthetics, but <laughs> I imagine so. I mean, <laughs> well, when Highlander came up, there was the possibility of you having to go under prosthetics. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we did, and and I did do prosthetics for that, but uh, I just I just said, you know, I don't want to do I don't want to do as much as I did before, and they they, they were very uh, sympathetic to that. And well, you so we just been, did a headpiece and that was about it well you've been in a lot of of films that you've been in a lot of successful films and you've also been in a lot of films that have become real cult favorites <laughs> the bride being one of them highlander is another one of them uh you know there's um starship troopers so many of these things that you've been a part of tell me what your feeling is about movies that drill into somebody's heart, like a, a cult film does, that a mainstream success may not? Well, I mean, you know, as much, I mean, you know, probably more than I do about it. You, you make these films um, uh, with your full heart, right? You know, uh, Frank was making The Bride with his full heart. And and uh, Russell was making Highlander with his full heart, and even Verhoeven was making Starship with his full heart. And uh, you know, I could even add Buck Rubanzai in there. Those guys, uh, yeah. Nick was making it with his full heart. But you have a business uh, uh, element to it in which you have to sell 
you have to you have to get the money to do it and so you 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 sell the film by promising to meet the expectations of the people who who make it because they not because of their heart but because of their bank book right they want you know the right. studios want to make money on it business and right and so uh you know we can't do it any other way you know the, the, the makers of it we have to make it with our full heart and, and and everything and as soon as we start uh making it with an eye towards the bottom line towards satisfying some kind of formula then it stops being what it's supposed to be you know um it starts it starts being something else it starts being a, a marketing product Right. But fans, and I've been become... in a, I've been in a few of those, and it hasn't worked yeah. out as well. Like um, I like to say, Cowboys and Aliens was very much sort of one of those things that was built as as a as a tentpole multi million dollar thing, and it had all the elements to it. it had all the producers and the directors, and you know, John Favreau was directing this crazy talented storyteller and everything, and he made it, and it didn't work because yeah because you had to there were too much there was too much expectation attached to it there was too much thing and then he goes away and he makes this beautiful little movie called chef yeah i love you know it's a beautiful film it's, it's a great movie you can tell it's all from his heart and the and the cowboys and aliens was all you know trying to trying to put all the pieces in place without 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 investing too much soul into it you know that's the way it goes. Sometimes. Well, I remember, and and we have another King connection here with the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, right. That um, you know, it's become, IMDb calls it the best movie ever made, and it's at the top of all these lists. So it not only achieved commercial success, but um, artistic success as well, and has been uh, adopted by all cineasts as a classic. Well, it was a, I was kind of Br'er Rabbit in that situation because uh, <laughs> they were shooting in uh, Mansfield, Ohio, and and oh, that's just a few hours from where I was born. Oh wow! Um, and there's so there's um, and there was a couple there was a couple of us small town country boys that weren't having any trouble acclimating to the uh, to the environs. Um, and then there was a bunch of folks from LA and New York and Chicago that were just terrified of, you know, being in, they thought they were in deliverance, you know, they, <laughs> they, they were scared to leave their hotels. Uh, and the, and the set itself, that, that reformatory, the Ohio reformatory that was Shawshank prison and is Shawshank prison now. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a spooky place. It's a place with a lot of ghosts and a lot of, a lot of bad mojo around it so um and it was a it was a film with a lot of guys to be honest there were maybe four or five women that you know were involved in the thing at all right. and uh and so you know we get a little bored us us guys yeah. uh frank worked really hard darabont the director uh, yeah uh um deacons was the dp and he, he and, you know everybody was working very hard and and I, I, you know, I don't know that we didn't have joy. It was just that we were sort of 
slogging through it. Uh, when it's beginning, it's a lot of fun and everybody's yeah. just kind of getting to know each other and everybody's kind of doing their tap dance around each other. And then, you know, after a few months, we know each other and we, <laughs> you know, then we just go to work and we've heard everybody's jokes and you know, we just <laughs> yeah. want the day to be over. Right? Well, speaking of that, I'd love to hear what your process is uh, when you take on a role. Um, is it more intuitive or is it something that you really dive into with research or, or I'm sure it depends on the role, but I'd love to hear how you approach performing your role. Well, it does depend on the role and it depends on the movie, right? It, uh, you, uh, you talk about Shawshank. There was a moment that, uh, you know, we had a, a technical advisor who said, you know, if you want to talk to any of the guards here to find out what their job is. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't want to base this, this son of a bitch on any of your guys, any of your correctional officers, because he's, he's kind of an asshole, you know, he's a horrible, <laughs> horrible person. And you don't want, you don't want me to like walk around saying, Oh yeah, I based it on Ohio correctional officers. Uh, because, uh, the creature that, um, uh, Stephen King imagined in Shawshank was a pretty horrible, horrible guy, a conglomeration of horrible people. Uh, yeah. since, uh, uh, that story took, takes place over decades and decades. And Frank had consolidated a lot of the characters in, in a great adaptation of the short story but uh you know so so that one was pretty much a creation of imagination where you kind of figure out where you you know what uh role you play in the narrative and you try to fulfill that role and fill it in with little um little personal touches uh i tell a story about the best direction i ever got uh from that film because uh, you had a bunch of guys there, a bunch of character actors that are used to playing their part in the narrative and then and then, you know, inflating it up to to make it something interesting, like, uh, you know, Joe Rangio and um, David Proval and Brian Libby and those guys, they, you know, they they're they're character actors and they, you know, they make their characters memorable by adding these little personal touches. And so I thought, well, I would do that, too. And there was a scene where. Uh, Captain Hadley was walking across the yard and I had decided that he was, you know, slowly going insane. He was, you know, getting Tourette'sy. So I just started mm -hmm. swearing as I was walking across, just kind of, you know, kind of in my own thing, walking across the yard and jerking and swearing and doing these things. And, and the, Frank was up on a crane. It was a big giant shot and everything. And so we shot it once and he, he says, you know, Clancy, hang out there. Frank wants to talk to you. And so he comes down off the crane. Everybody resets. I'm walking back to one. And he comes up to me. He's got his little cigarette, his little tipperillo thing. And he puts his <laughs> arm around me. And he says, you know, that thing you're doing as you're walking? I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. See, see, I'm trying to be like he's kind of starting to lose it. He's Tourette's. And he goes, no, 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 that's great. That's great. Just don't do it anymore because you look stupid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great, good, okay. Thanks, thanks, Frank. Good for now. That. That's and, direction. <laughs> that's direction. <laughs> that is, that is as direct as it gets. And uh, and I always got a big kick out of that because I, because he got off of the crane and walked down to me and told me privately that I was looking like an idiot, uh, <laughs> <laughs> rather than sort of say it over the bullhorn. Yeah. Have somebody else say it to me over a bullhorn. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate, I always Frank appreciate says, that. Frank, <laughs> yeah, Frank says, says stop doing that. Stop <laughs> doing that. <laughs> so, uh, and then other things like this, uh, this one I just did, um, 
uh, from the mortuary collection, which I have mm -hmm. behind me here, uh, yes. is, uh, you know, that's, a, he's a very iconic kind of character, Montgomery Dark. He's sort of a, he's the host of the, of he's, he's the, he's the mortician. Uh, but he's a very presentational kind of guy. He's he's a he's guy the crypt who gets keeper. Yeah. right. He's the crypt keeper. He's the storyteller in a way. But he's also he's also somebody who's very invested in all the details of not just the stories, but the you know the, what he does because he's a mortician. He has to know feels like he has to know the circumstances of his clientele, and um, and he's teaching someone. Uh, about this as as he goes along that's the conceit of the film and how we get into these different stories but he also is sort of the f the final presentation of that person on earth uh during the uh during the funeral um and he'll you know he so he takes that very seriously and he kind of kind of enjoys that part because it's the only time that he's not alone it's the time when he has visitors and so he gets to gets to orate a little bit and, you know, gets a little carried away with it sometimes. Um, <laughs> well, in, I love in, the anthology format. I've done several yeah. myself and, and it just opens you up to so many opportunities to just change it up every few minutes. You know, you're yeah, telling a new yeah. story and you're not only telling the story as you're involved. It's, it's yeah, more that's, than just relating it. Yeah, no, that's and that, I think that's what's terrific about the mortuary collection is that there the the wraparound that you have is 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 very much its own story and they're all very much uh, cut from the same cloth. That also, you know, there's the technical reasons that that's that that it works is that you had you you know you had a similar uh, photography scheme and color scheme and design scheme, right? And and for every. Uh, every story as well as as well as the wraparound story so it all seemed of a piece and and, and different in the same tone the whole time where some sometimes you get stories that just don't look like this they're part of the same movie but this one right. definitely did and you had the same writer and director that always helps too all right so it's stylistically the same throughout, yeah. Dis yeah. despite the different attitudes in the different right. stories and characters and the like right 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 so what about the theatrical experience versus the streaming experience or the home experience? Um, do you go to the movies a lot? Oh yeah. Your, your introduction broke my heart. I get it. Oh. oh man. Uh, you know, I'm in Massachusetts right now doing it, doing a gig, but uh, boy, if it's uh, just when you said that, you know, it's 25% capacity opened up at the theaters, I went, oh man, I wish I was home. I want to go to, I want to go to a movie theater so bad. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, that's, it's, I, I think it's been great that uh, so much product has gotten um, distributed over over streaming and and uh and you know through our tv sets and computers and stuff but there's nothing like sitting in a theater and and hearing that uh, thx sound and mm. um, and and seeing the big screen i mean uh, it's you know you just can't watch uh you know um, a film like uh uh what was it 1917 last year oh we just, yeah you, i mean yeah. it's that's how you have to watch that you can watch it and you can sort of appreciate it to a certain extent but you can't you can't be moved by it the way 
you would be moved by it in a, in a you can't screen. become a part of it the way you can in a in a right. cinema yeah, yeah it's yeah. going to make for very weird oscars this year that's for sure yeah yeah but it sort of makes sense i mean a lot of the oscars to me a lot of the films and they're all terrific but a lot of them look like they're shot for tv i mean there's a there's a real television uh feel to them and yeah. that's but that's that's also me being an old old curmudgeon guy <laughs> um, well you know I, well because you know I, there's I there's no can't. tv yeah. There's no yeah. real TV movie anymore. It's not, you know, TV is very good. And and nobody really watches TV anymore. As so my yeah. kids keep reminding me, so they stop saying TV. Nobody watches <laughs> TV except you and mom. But television has become much more cinematic. Uh, yeah. You and know, the, the production values are so great now, you know, having worked on both sides of the fence. I mean, you do a lot of television, you do a lot of features. Mm -hmm. And another thing that you do is hundreds and hundreds of episodes of animation. Tell mm -hmm. me how that door opened for you, because now you're part of the DC universe, you're part of, of the SpongeBob universe and all of these, these areas that a lot of the audience has no idea is even going on. And you are like a superstar in voice talent. I don't know that I'm a superstar in voice talent. I've just, well, I uh, I've just been, if you... I've just been lucky, and I know the superstars, and they're very good. Um, <laughs> no, I just got lucky. I was uh, my my daughter had just been born, and and um, I think Disney originally said, you know, we don't want the usual suspects, even though the usual suspects are all genius guys. Uh, and they sort of decided to open up uh, some of their shows to. Uh, they, they wanted theatrical people. I think it was Gargoyles was the one uh, specifically. And then they got a bunch of TV and film actors to do it. And some of us were better than others. Uh, I totally was not that good, but I, but I just loved the working environment. I loved all the people. I, it was so much fun. I would laugh so hard. And then you get with um, people that are expert in it, like Jim Cummings and Tom Kenny and uh, uh, Rob Paulson and those guys, and you see how facile and unbelievably uh, talented they are. Uh, Kevin Michael Richardson. I remember doing an episode of uh, Powerpuff Girls and just not being able to say my lines because I was just laughing so hard the whole time. Everybody was so talented and, and funny and good. Tress McNeil, oh my God, there's nothing that she can't do. Uh, so I so I kind of came into it like a fan and have been a fan of all of these people ever since. I just kind of, I, I think I got hired a lot because I was a good audience, to be honest mm. with you. And then I sort of incidentally learned how to do a few voiceover tricks and, you know, try not to pop my peas and do stuff like that. And so I've been lucky that way. So I think mostly I'm hired because everybody else just likes to try to crack me up, I think. That's well, it's such a different experience. I got my SAG card doing some voices on a Pink Panther. Yes. And Wait a minute, Pink Panther? What did you say, Pink Panther? I thought they didn't have it. What, this Pink was Panther? years ago. Voices? Matt, Matt Frewer was the voice of the Pink Panther in the later edition of those cartoons. Oh, okay. It wasn't the... And so, I, just, yeah, I just remembered he, being the Burke Bacharach song. And, yeah. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> Uh, Henry, Henry Mancini or Mancini. Um, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. But, um, and, and I was so 
surprised by how they do it. It's a bunch of actors in, around a table and right. many of them have never read the script before. The director points at you and then they do the lines and no, say it because what's happening here is you're hit by the horse in your butt and then <laughs> you repeat it. And it's so completely different from making a movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. And it's all in, it's all in that director's head. It's all in, it's all in the animator's head. And they, but that, there's also different ways to do it. They, um, sometimes it's, uh, it, it's a completely script based, uh, a story. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, uh, DC, uh, Supermans and Batmans and stuff were very, very script heavy, very dialogue heavy. And, you know, they'd, it was it was all about how the script came together something like um spongebob was all written from a storyboard so there was it was all visual jokes it was all getting in and out of the visual jokes and the the dialogue was almost incidental and mm. now we kind of are a hybrid of that but um yeah it, and it's all very different depending on who who created it you know and that's that's also very exciting is to work with somebody that you haven't worked with before and to see you know where they're coming at it from I've, there's so many different ways to approach animation it's it's really a fun fun thing that's and that that's probably why you have to be so facile at it you know your guy sitting around the table that's i haven't done that i haven't done sitting around oh the table. really i no, thought I that was the norm it's matt, <laughs> no. Frewer, matt frewer and dan castellanetta and all oh. these different, it, was, it was amazing they were amazing i'm sure they were they right. were, and I just felt like a kid in a candy store. Yeah, exactly. I um, always feel like I have to read the script, though. I can't. I can't imagine going in having not read the script. <laughs> I would. I'm not that so. good. I have to. I have to. I have to, <laughs> um, to your know what I'm doing. Your hundreds of episodes belie that fact. Uh, <laughs> so, and and Lex Luthor. Let's talk about your approach to Lex Luthor in animation. Mm, if you, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, he seems to be your 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 primary character in in your in your dozens of animated characters. Yeah, I've done a lot of Lex Luthor. Lex is an interesting guy. I mean, you know, I I kind of grew up on the uh, was it George Reeves? Yeah. TV Superman. Yeah. So I kind of grew up on that, and there wasn't any Lex Luthor character in that. Um, no. That didn't happen until like much later in the in the books and stuff and I really wasn't into the books I remember watching it on Super Friends and seeing Lex Luthor on Super Friends mm -hmm. and then uh, and then in some of the some of the other subsequent TV shows like Lois and Clark and stuff like that but and then the movies of course um, but um, uh, he's an interesting character because he sort of is he's the he's the bad guy who's also the the thing that's holding society together you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. that's always the way i've looked at him he's the he's the big businessman right um he's you know they, people say bezos is lex luther now um <laughs> and just because he kind of looks like him but but it's not wrong i mean there's a there's a as we progress as society and as an economy and stuff these little things these little uh uh things that become big things like Amazon, you know, or Walmart or whatever the, you know, GE, whatever the, whatever the thing that takes over your economy, uh, uh, all of a sudden becomes evil because it can exerts way too much control on the individual and on, and you, you end up being 
compromised, your, your principles be compromised. And I think Superman in particular is, is an aspirational character, especially in America, because he sort of, what was it, the 30s that he came into existence and uh, it kind of grew uh, as an as a anti-fascist guy, the first Antifa right. superhero, right? <laughs> and, um, and, so th and that was when America kind of became the preeminent superpower. But um, truth, justice, and the American way, and truth and justice, we all know what truth and justice are, but the American way keeps keeps changing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we have to, that's kind of what the Lex Luthor thing is. It's like uh, the American way sometimes pushes against truth and justice, I, I think a little bit, you know, back in George Reeves time, it wasn't, it was pretty obvious for a kid in Urbana, what truth, justice in the American way, it's all, you know, it's the triumvirate, it's the, it's the Trinity. Uh, but as we've, as we've gone through the decades, uh, the, it's kind of gotten a little uh, more amorphous, a little more, a little more difficult to rationalize the American way. Sometimes the American well, way changes, you know. I mean, yeah. Well, having had a, a, a father and a grandfather who were both in Congress, yeah, uh, who were yeah. both politicians, did you find that to be influential? I mean, most people revolt against. They were Republican Congress people. Um, right often the children go in the opposite direction. Did you find yourself becoming political? Well, my dad didn't go in the opposite direction. I mean, there was, you know, like I said, I think during that time, it was truth, justice, and the American way it was pretty, pretty simple, simple thing to figure out and simple thing to work towards. And, you know, a, a Republican and a Democrat can both be working towards, towards that. And I think as we've gotten, uh, as society and life has just gotten more complicated, uh, it's become harder and harder. I never really had a talent for it. My brother had a talent for it. My sister mm -hmm. probably has a talent for it, but I never really had a talent for it. I don't have the patience for it. And especially now, I would definitely not have the patience for it. So, okay. I, you know, it's... Uh, well, you have played a lot of villains and yeah. partly because you're tall and you have a booming voice and all those things. But tell me about that. Do you ever find yourself, um, I, you've played the good guy many times, but you're more often the bad guy. Tell me about your feelings about playing the two sides of the good and evil coin. I, you know, that, that's something that the creators have to figure out, you know. <laughs> you tell me, Mick. I mean, it's but you deal with it. Yeah. yeah, but you know, it's the 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 bad guy never thinks he's the bad guy, um, and you don't want you don't want somebody playing the bad guy. You want somebody just playing the character. Exactly, um, but the bad guy right. is also almost always the most memorable character. Yeah, and he's the one that f that forces the action usually, and that's kind of I think what we resent. Uh, what the hero resents. If it was up to the hero, especially the American hero, the American archetype of the hero, he'd just, you know, he'd stay at home and garden, be a farmer, or, you know, mm -hmm. take the dogs out for a walk or whatever, whatever he does, he would just live his life and be left alone. But, you know, some evil bad guy comes in and wants to, you know, wants to build houses in your neighborhood or he wants to build, you know, wants to build a factory or put this or that or the other, or wants to, um, you know, wants to do something bad, wants to do something that messes up your, your routine. So, right. So that gives you license. Yeah. That gives you license. Yeah, that, right. The, 
the progressive person is self-serving, so that gives the individual the right to to wreak havoc on the rest of the world sometimes. <laughs> Well, you've had such amazing experiences with an incredible array of filmmakers, and you've also done two films with the Coen brothers, and they work in a very unique way. Tell me what that ex those experiences were like for you in Hail Caesar and uh, um, and Buster Scruggs. Buster Scruggs. Well, they were both very brief. Um, the one thing that struck me about uh, working with them is well they're both very good guys you know i mean i didn't get to know them extremely well but but they're good fellas they uh both times they allowed me to audition for something that i thought i was more right for and then they said thank you very much please play the part that we actually want you to play <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're good guys to let me at least take a stab at something else uh, and then i would go and do what they wanted me to the other thing that struck me about them is that they're very um thorough they, uh, the preparation is, uh, is at least as far as, as far as I was concerned, was extremely thorough. They would, uh, for that brief thing in Hail Caesar, they had me, you know, riding around on a, on a Roman saddle, on a horse and a, and a Roman saddle, which I thought was pretty cool. They, uh, their, their attention to detail in the, in the wardrobe itself. Um, yeah, and, and uh, it's not so much rehearsal. Uh, as it were, but but uh, did you find them to be sort thorough of thorough preparation? Was it sort uh, of a technical process? Yeah, they're a team. I mean, um, Joel kind of uh, he's the one that's behind the camera and putting it together, and, and Ethan is the one that's kind of uh, talking to everybody else. Um, uh, but you know, I remember asking them, you know, what their favorite part of the process is, and they said, you know, the next one. You know, <laughs> what, what, whatever we have to do next, like we're filming now, I'm really looking forward to editing. You know, once when we're writing, we're really looking forward to filming. And so, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they're good together. And, and, and the set is, is a happy set. And Roger Deakins is their DP. So you can't, can't argue yeah, with that. He, he shot Unbroken, which was a movie that I executive produced. And ah, very good. He's yeah. one of, the most amazing cinematographers that yeah. there is. Yeah, great guy too. And 1917, by the way. Yes, astounding yeah. that. Yeah. What's your favorite part of the process? That's a good question. I have to go and do a bunch of memorization after we get off today. That's that's not something I look forward to, but once I'm into it, I'm into it. I, you know, I just like I I just like doing the scenes. Uh, it's kind of when everything goes away, um, and you're in the moment with the other actor, hopefully. Uh, and that's kind of when, when whatever alchemy is supposed to happen, happens. Uh, sometimes it doesn't happen, uh, but it, you know, it's always worth trying. It's always worth making that effort. It's always worth another take always worth going. I also like it when there isn't time to do that and you just have to technically kick it out. And, you know, you see everybody pulling in the same direction. There's that great line from Patton when he's sitting up there and he's looking at all the, all the tanks moving down the road. And he says, you know, there's no other endeavor, human endeavor that matches making war, the, 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 um, the human, um, focus and the, the 
coordination and the movement of material and men and all this. And the, the only thing that actually matches it is making a movie, you know, <laughs> that's very much like that. And, and I love that kind of, that kind of teamwork, that kind of thing. Um, that's at, at, at bottom, at bottom, that's what I like it. So even if I don't get fulfilled, you know, egotistically or artistically or any of that other shit. I just love the idea of just being part of a team that's, that's making something. Is there one experience that you remember over all that you've had thus far that really hit on all cylinders and you really felt like this is the best time I've ever had in this, <laughs> this podcast, maybe. Yeah, right. <laughs> this no podcast doubt. has been amazing. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, the the mortuary collection was quite memorable because we did it for no money, and everybody was uh, everybody was doing it, it really from their from their heart, and everybody was bringing their A game, and it was a lot of people you didn't know. There was a lot of new people, a lot of people that uh, you know were getting kind of a promotion, and uh, you know it was it was just a it, not that there weren't problems. And there weren't tough days, but there was, you know, nobody was, nobody was resenting being there. Everybody was happy to be there. Uh, and then, you know, your memory of Shawshank is a little different than my memory of Shawshank. Yeah. Um, but the memories always change. <laughs> you know, yeah. They always get, but they always get better. You know? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would love to ask you about the, about the stand and, you know, what it was like making that thing. Well, that was that was a hundred days, and the first uh, first uh, seven, uh, the first thirteen weeks were uh, five day weeks, and the last seven weeks were six day weeks. Oh my goodness! Six states, uh, hundred and twenty five, uh, ninety five scripted locations, hundred and twenty five speaking parts, and uh, moving every day, two times, sometimes two locations a day. Um, you were so Patton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that which doesn't kill me made me stronger. So, but yeah, yeah we'll, we'll it was, talk about it was that. a it was great. <laughs> it was it was a really good realization. I like until okay. Shawshank. I think that was that was the best uh, realization of Stephen's work. And, uh, I I blush. Thank you. No, it was it was the first time because he's hard to he's hard to do. He's hard to pull off. Yeah, I think the the people who don't get it right are the people who think it's about the boo and not the people. Right, you know? right, exactly. And right. and uh, his characters are so rich and filled with depth and emotion that come mm -hmm. from a very real place within him, and and I think that's the important thing Frank Darabont gets about him, and right. the people who do get him, and right. there are several right. now. Good. There's Mike Flanagan, and there's Rob Reiner, and there's so many people who who really do King well. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> thank goodness. Well, Clancy, I can't tell you what a pleasure this is. And the Mortuary Collection is uh, out April 20th on uh, Blu-ray and DVD and VOD and all of that stuff. So, uh, and I'm so glad you're so proud of that film because it, you can tell it was made with love. I am. And it's worth owning. It's a very, very rich film. It's very rich. There's something in every frame to savor. So yeah. it's a it's 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 one of those things that you know some of these films aren't worth owning, but that one definitely is. Well, you go, got go me wanting to watch it a second time now. Okay, so. go go for it. 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Quancy. It's been a pleasure right. having you on and well, look forward to doing it again. I, I'm honored to be one of the only actors you've done so far. I, I, <laughs> I love this podcast because I like to get inside the brains of the directors and hear what's actually what's actually going on there. It's a lot more than Thank I ever figured. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Clancy, and take care. Right. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.